You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, Busman's Holiday. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you a fairly straightforward question. It's very simple. How many men have ever walked on the moon? I'm not even going to bother to give you a set of answers to choose from. So assuming that you still believe that men did once walk on the moon and it's not one big hoax, how many men have actually set foot on Earth's only natural satellite? And as always, I'll let you toss this question around your head for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story, which is titled Busman's Holiday. And that requires us to once again hop in our time machine and set our clocks back to Friday, March 28th of 1947. Calling all cars, calling all cars. Be on the lookout for a brand new 44-passenger cream and red-colored diesel passenger bus, numbered 1310. Its driver, 37-year-old William Lawrence Similo, is also missing and is presumed to have stolen the bus. Okay, I may be dramatizing a bit here to grab your attention, but this bus and its driver really were missing. What was known at the time was that Similo drove the one-month-old $18,000, which is about $183,000 today, he drove the bus out of the Surface Transportation System Garage, which was located at 2050 Webster Avenue in the Bronx, that's in New York City, at 6.50 a.m. for his usual run that morning, and he never picked up a single fare. Two hours later, the bus was spotted about 20 miles, or 32 kilometers away, in Clifton, New Jersey. And that's simply because it was near the home of one of the company's mechanics. You know, just a wee bit off course. Almost immediately, a teletype alarm was transmitted to police in 11 states around New York, and that was to keep an eye out for the bus. So here you have this gigantic bus that's missing. It's big. It's huge. It's not the kind of thing that one can easily hide. Yet believe it or not, nobody could find it. The bus seemed to have just vanished into thin air, and the press was having a field day with this story. Within 48 hours, the story had hit the front page of newspapers all across the United States. But the bus was still nowhere to be found. 
At least that was until 7 a.m. on Monday, March 31st, when police found it sitting empty on the side of the road on U.S. Route 1. That's about two miles outside of Hollywood, Florida, and not too far from the Gulfstream Park racetrack. Whoa, Florida? What? Florida? How in the world did a bus that started in New York City get to Florida in that short period of time? Now keep in mind, this is 1947, not today. This is before the days of major highways everywhere, and that bus was about 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers away from home. And what's even more interesting is that the Hollywood police had no clue that the bus was stolen. They simply saw this bright, shiny bus with New York license plates that was unlike anything they'd ever seen in this area before. The only reason that the officers stopped to look at it was sheer curiosity. And what they found was a locked bus that was in perfect shape. Inside, they observed a brown jacket that was hanging on the back of the driver's seat, a sleeveless sweater, and then there was a tan shirt that looked like it had been hand-washed and hung to dry. And the bus would have sat there for days if the president of the Surface Transportation Company, that's Thomas J. Hackett, back in New York, hadn't received an urgent telegram at 8.34 a.m. that day. It said, quote, With disabled bus number 1310, stop. In need of $50, stop. Answer care of Western Union, stop. Send money to Hollywood, stop. Similo. Yes, you heard that correctly. Similo ran out of money and he contacted the company that he stole the bus from to send him additional cash. How crazy is that? But instead of wiring cash, Vice President Hackett contacted the New York City police, who then telegraphed their colleagues down in Hollywood to arrest Zamillo. They, in turn, planted men around the abandoned bus and also at the racetrack. And they waited and waited, and then at 6.30 p.m., a man fitting Zamillo's description walked into the Western Union office at the racetrack to see if any money had been wired to him. Officers approached and asked if he was Similo, which he did confirm. So he was arrested and placed in the local jail, and when asked if he had placed any bets while at the racetrack, Similo denied that he had done so, having only $2.60 in his possession. Similo claimed that the root of all his troubles could be traced back to some financial difficulties that he was having with some bookmakers. And that, coupled with having to drive the same old grind, you know, day after day, for 16 years, caused him to take a sudden left on that Friday morning, and that would forever change his life. He was unable to explain why, but he had this incredible impulse to just keep driving and driving. Quote, something happened to me when I pulled out of that garage. All of a sudden, I was telling myself, baby, this is it. I left town in a hurry. Somehow, I didn't care where I went. I just turned the wheel to the left, and soon I was on highway number one, bound for Florida. After leaving New York, he had driven 15 hours before making his first stop. He slept the first night in a tourist cabin in Virginia, and that was followed by a stay in a Georgia cabin the next. Similo had replaced the subway sign on the bus with the word special, and any time someone questioned where he was headed, he simply said, 
south. After driving through eight different states, he arrived in Hollywood, Florida that Sunday morning, and he wired his request for additional funds. Amazingly, he did not believe that the company would hold a grudge against him since he had every intention of returning the bus unharmed. On April 5th, that's four days after his arrest, Smilla was handed an armload of coconuts as a souvenir of his stay in Florida, boarded the bus, and he started upon his journey back to New York. This time, however, Smilla was not at the wheel. That responsibility was assigned to company mechanic John Anderson. Two detectives, along with a prisoner being returned from Florida on abandonment charges, were also aboard the bus. By the time the bus pulled into Wilmington, Delaware, three days later, Smillo had become a national hero. You see, he was the common man who had grown frustrated with a daily grind, and he basically told his boss to take this job and shove it, as the expression goes. Uh, so this bus was immediately surrounded by reporters, photographers, and movie cameramen, and they insisted on a complete reenactment of Samillo's arrival in town. And they did, but things didn't go quite as planned. As the cameras rolled, the bus, with Samillo aboard, was triumphantly escorted through the city by a patrolman on a motorcycle. As they approached Pennsylvania Station, which is now the Joe Biden or Wilmington Station, the motorcycle came to a stop. Unfortunately, the bus didn't and bumped into the patrolman and knocked him to the ground. So the driver was taken to the Wilmington Police Station and the bus company forked over $17.50 for damage to the motorcycle. The next morning, as the bus emerged from the Holland Tunnel into Manhattan, it stopped one block from the Beach Street Police Station, and that was to let off nine reporters and photographers who had jumped aboard back in Delaware. Again totally staged, Similo and the bus made its grand return alone, where they were met by hundreds of cheering people and dozens of additional reporters standing outside the police station. Inside, Similo was booked on a charge of grand larceny, and that carried a possible sentence of up to 10 years in jail. But he didn't stay there long. Amazingly, the company he had stolen the bus from paid the $1,000 bail so that Samilla could go home and see his wife and three sons. When questioned, company president Victor McQuistian refused to say as to whether or not the company would press charges against Samillo. But let's face it, if they were posting bail, things were already looking up for their employee. Well, at least it appeared that way until the very next day. That's when he was arraigned in Bronx County Court. Chief Assistant District Attorney Sylvester Ryan made it clear that Samillo's behavior was totally unacceptable. Quote, we are living in a system where in order to maintain law and order, we are required to restrain our impulses. And that's the end of the quote. It was revealed that on October 30th, Similo had been fined $25 on a bookmaking charge. And that was followed on December 11th of another $200 fine for the same offense. This time, however, he was given a 30-day suspended sentence for his crime. In other words, Similo was not the innocent character that the press had made him out to be. In 
fact, he was a petty gambler who owed $1,896 to various loan companies. It was also revealed in the press that Similo had been suspended by the bus company three months earlier due to an inconsistency between the fares that he collected and the account book that he had turned in. Now, the suspension lasted only one day, and Similo was cleared of any wrongdoing, and his wages were completely restored. Similo responded, quote, I had a little trouble financially, and I wanted to get away and go somewhere to think it over quietly. He added, I had no intention of stealing the bus. I just went for a joyride. Yet a few bad words in the press did little to change the public's perception of Similo. Drivers back at the bus terminal voted to hold a dance at the Bronx Winter Garden on May 1st to raise funds to pay off Similo's debts and to hire the best legal talent possible. Finally, on April 17th, Similo received the word that he had been eagerly awaiting. The bus company decided to give him his old job back. How crazy is that? He stole their bus and they gave him his job back. He was placed on a one-year probation and he was back to work the very next day. Similo was given the same bus route, but of course they did not give him the same new bus. Seven reporters and photographers accompanied him on his first trip out of the garage. Passengers went out of their way to ride aboard Similo's bus, and one of the dance committee members rode on the bus and tickets for the fundraiser sold briskly. After school let out that afternoon, an estimated 350 screaming schoolgirls tried to board his bus for the ride home, even though three other buses were lined up right behind Similo's. And that was basically it until September 14th of 1948, and that's when Similo made the news once again. But this time he had done nothing wrong. Instead, he received a company award, get this, for safe driving. He was one of 1,100 out of 2,200 drivers to get the award, but I bet he was the only one to make the national papers with the announcement. On October 16th of 1950, that's three years, six months, and 19 days after Similo stole the bus, the larceny charge against him was fully dismissed. The tragic death of Elizabeth Taylor's third husband, Mike Todd, once again thrust Similo's spring outing into the spotlight. Legend has it that Todd had been working on a script for his next movie production, which was tentatively titled Busman's Holiday. The script was forwarded by airmail to Mike's office in California, but it didn't arrive. Both Todd and the script had gone down in separate airplane crashes. Todd was killed in a crash near Grants, New Mexico, and the script went down near Chicago. After his death, the script was finally delivered to Todd's office with its pages scorched and water-stained. In June of 1958, it was announced that Mike Todd's son, Mike Jr., and his stepmother, Elizabeth Taylor, had set up a production company, and their first film would be titled, I'm sure you got this already, Busman's Holiday. Taylor would not only star as a beauty queen in the film, but would also mark the first time that she ever sang on film. 
The film must have been incredibly loosely based on Similo's bus excursion, since I never came across a single mention of a beauty queen in any of my research. While filming did commence on the movie, for unknown reasons the project was scrapped and never completed. When interviewed in March of 1960, Similo said, quote, This New York traffic gets to you. It's like driving in a squirrel cage. When questioned as to whether he would ever do something so drastic again, he added, You tell somebody a joke a second time, and it's not always so funny. William Lawrence Similo died in September of 1975 at 66 years of age. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Mrs. Hazelberg, living in Hollywood, is awakened at 2 a.m. by the ringing of her telephone. Hello? Goodbye, Hazel. This is Virginia. I'm turned on the gas. I'm dying. But before I leave this world, I hate so much. I, I wanted to say goodbye to you. Goodbye, dear. Oh, hello? Hello, Virginia. Hello. Oh, operator, give me the police department. Quick, this is an emergency. Quick, please. Also, please calling car 42, car 42. A woman committing suicide with gas. At 7566 and because the police meet hundreds of emergencies like this every day, when seconds saved mean the difference between life and death, they specify Rio Grande cracked gasoline to power more police and emergency cars than any other brand. This emergency gasoline galvanizes into action at the touch of the start. It accelerates so much faster than ordinary gasoline. Police and emergency car drivers in Los Angeles, Oakland, Berkeley, and many, many other cities, as well as deputy sheriffs in Maricopa County, Arizona, and many other counties where great distances must be covered at top speed, all swear by Rio Grande cracked gasoline as the fastest, most powerful, most efficient gasoline they have ever used. And every day, scores of motorists who try Rio Grande cracked gasoline for the first time get the thrill of police car performance in their own cars. That commercial for Rio Grande Crack Gasoline came from the December 13, 1933 broadcast of Calling All Cars. This particular episode was titled York Gang Holdup. The show ran from November 29, 1933 to September 8, 1939 on the CBS West Coast Network, but only in the markets where Rio Grande gasoline was sold. That's California, Arizona, and Nevada. 
each episode of the show was a dramatization of true crime stories of the Los Angeles Police Department. A monthly periodical called Calling All Car News could be picked up at your nearby Rio Grande gas station. Rio Grande cracked gasoline was nothing special since by this time nearly all gasoline available was cracked during the refining process. It was just good marketing on their part. As everyone knows, crude oil is a mixture of many hydrocarbons which are separated to give us tar, jet, diesel, you know, home fuel, kerosene, gasoline, and so on. When the automobile became popular in the early 20th century, crude oil just couldn't produce a high enough percentage of gasoline from the complete mix, so the process of cracking was used. Cracking had been invented in 1891 by Russian engineer Vladimir Sukhov, and while the methodology has changed over time, the concept has not. Basically, you take heavier, more complex molecules that are in the crude oil, and you split them into lighter molecules, which includes gasoline. Then all it took was the marketing gurus at Sinclair Oil to turn it into a popular slogan for their Rio Grande brand of gasoline. But in the end, it was still just plain old gasoline. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. And all of today's stories have the same theme in common. They all deal with the seismic waves called tsunamis. Our first story appeared in the press on November 25th of 1755, which reported that an incredibly dreadful earthquake had hit Lisbon, Portugal. News travels slowly in those days, so the exact date of the earthquake was Saturday, November 1st, which just happened to have been All Saints Day. The king and queen of Portugal did survive, as did their great palace, but the overall death toll was immense. The article indicates that the death toll was about 60,000 people, but to this day no one knows for sure. The population of Lisbon at this time was about 200,000 people, so whether it was 40,000 or 60,000 people, you know, it really doesn't make much difference. What is definitely known is that the survivors of the strong earthquake raced to the shoreline and piled up on the docks to watch the water recede and reveal the naked ocean floor below. Sadly, we all know today what they didn't know back then. A giant wave, what would you know, many years later be called a tsunami, would come back in and engulf the entire area in water that was said to be 22 feet or 6.7 meters in height. Fires raged for days afterwards and consumed a large portion of Lisbon, claiming even more lives. Our next report is of a tsunami that hit the island of Yezo in Japan at 8 p.m. on Monday, June 15th of 1896. Again, it wasn't until July 28th that it was finally reported in the United States newspapers. The death toll again was immense. An estimated 30,000 people were killed and an equal number left homeless and starving. With warming weather, decomposition, and disease was turning this into a dreadful situation. The article reported that another tsunami had hit Japan back in 1854, which was well within the memory of many people alive at the time, but the toll on life was not nearly as great. 
Japan's emperor and empress donated 14,000 yen, and relief was being offered by both Japanese and foreign aid. And our last tidbit for today occurred on June 30th of 1933, which reported that Dr. Shinkiski Hatai of the Japanese Imperial University had recently made a presentation to the Pacific Science Congress in Vancouver, British Columbia, detailing the strange behavior of fishes and other aquatic animals prior to earthquakes and tsunamis. Dr. Hatai said that it had been observed that fish had refused to take hooks for several days prior to two earthquakes and one volcanic eruption. And prior to a tsunami, fishermen were able to catch deep-sea fishes by fishing line, and eels were observed to have been half-protruded from their holes during daylight hours. Lastly, Mollusks that were known to have lived in deeper water appear to have migrated to shallower waters. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked how many men have ever walked on the moon? Now it really isn't that difficult to figure out. Almost everyone knows that Neil Armstrong was the first to step on the moon on July 21st of 1969 in Apollo 11. And of course, Buzz Aldrin followed shortly behind him. That's two astronauts per mission up through Apollo 17 for a total of 14 men. Then, of course, you have to subtract out two for Apollo 13. Now, as a side note, many of my younger students are unfamiliar with the incredible Apollo 13 story. So if you don't know it, I suggest renting the movie because that's a really good place to start. So the answer is 12 men in total. So can you name them all? Well, here they are in alphabetical order. Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, Alan Bean, Gene Cernan, Pete Conrad, Charles Duke, James Irwin, Edgar Mitchell, Harrison Schmidt, David Scott, Alan Shepard, and John Young. Now, I'll admit that I cheated and looked them up myself. I was only familiar with six of the men. Four of the 12 are no longer alive, and the remaining eight are currently in their late 70s or early 80s. I was nine years old on December 14th of 1972. That's when Gene Cernan made the last human footprint on the moon and climbed aboard the lunar module for that trip back to Earth. No human has ever returned since. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, I had a lot of fun researching uh, today's story, Busman's Holiday, so I really hope that you enjoyed it. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. Be sure to check out my Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's all one word, useless information podcast. If you'd like to contact me for some reason, you can email me at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website, uselessinformation.org, which, uh, as I mentioned last podcast, I finally updated, and I will be posting the script to that site. Lastly, and I haven't asked this in a while, I'd appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.